Hey guys, welcome to The Real Guy Podcast. Now this episode was a special one for me as I reached out to my old history teacher from St. Thomas Aquinas High School, Rob Biasati. Rob, or Mr. B as I've always called him, was the strength coach for St. Thomas's football team, the number one high school football program in the country, sporting multiple national championships and state titles over the course of almost 20 years. He was also the founder of Endgame Adventures, a company that encouraged students to really get out of their comfort zones through traveling to exotic and exciting locations. His ability to unite people made him a perfect guest to have on the podcast. Also, we discovered that Mr. B and Jeff were both graduates of St. Thomas's class of 1986, which made this episode a bit of a high school reunion for the three of us. Hope you guys enjoy this episode and run that dog. Clear the airwaves. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is the Real Guy Podcast. I wasn't really dating a lot of girls and I wasn't really like going to parties. Matter of fact, I remember being outside a few parties, like wondering, like, how do I, like, what's the end? Like, how do I get inside this party? Like, and when I get in there, like, what do I do? And then if I ever did get in, um, it wasn't like there was a cage or anything that was blocking my entrance. It was just that psychological trying to get in. And if I ever did get in, I would get in and I'd just kind of walk around. I wasn't like a drinker or anything. So I just kind of like was an observer, you know? Right. You never ended up in jail or nothing. No. <laughs> That's a success story in this town. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> I feel good about that. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I'm not sure how I did it, but I did it successfully. <laughs> and uh, if, I yeah. remember, if I remember, now you either played one or two positions. You either played running back or defensive back. Am I right about that? Yeah, when I showed up to St. Thomas, uh, they had me at running back. And then uh, Slip was the starting running back. Right. So Smith came to me and said, dude, if you want to play, he says, you might want to switch over to corner. Right. And then uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to play as a junior by switching over to corner, so it was kind of a no-brainer. Right. That, yeah. that, that that's how I re- that's that's what I recall. And, and listen, I mean, <laughs> Slip was like the fastest guy, you know, I've ever seen live. So, yeah, I think he was one of the fastest, one, two or three fastest dudes in the country for the longest time. Yeah, that was pretty pretty impressive. I thought uh, the. The memory that I have from St. Thomas Athletics wasn't even football. We did a uh, 440 relay. It was Slip, myself, Willie Miller, Chandler White. That's a great company. Yeah, now that was uh, that was uh, one of the highlights of my athletic career in high school because we'd roll up to like say Piper Invitational. I'd be the only white dude running any sprints, and right. then. And then, you know, having Slip and Chandler and Willie with me, um, you know, we basically, you know, we went all the way to state and all that. So it was like, yeah, it was, it was huge. Not the football wasn't huge, but it's just weird when you look back at it at 50 years old and you say, what was, you know, the coolest thing? You know, you would think, it, you know, from the outside looking in, it'd be football always, but not necessarily. It's funny how shit changes when you get old. Right, 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 right. But now was Shep, was Shep your coach back then? Yep, Shep was my coach. That was uh, what a blessing. I love Shep. That's like having the Wyatt Earp of coaches as your coach. 
Dude, that was like jump a fence, run into gunfire, you know, whatever you need. Yeah. And then he'd like look at you in the face and like tell you something. And it's like, it wasn't like, like you knew right away there wasn't an option to do anything except exactly what he told you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I loved, I loved, I loved Shep. Great. So, so Rob, take us through, take us through uh, your progression from, you get out. You graduate St. Thomas together in '86. You and I, the class of '86. I got a basketball scholarship to play at Stetson University in Deland, and in my freshman year, I got in a really bad car accident and broke both my legs. And um, I redshirted. And I kind of like, um, you know, my my purpose, my you know, my whole deal was was basketball. I wasn't really like a stellar. I wasn't a a bad student. I was just a really average student. And I didn't have a lot going on besides basketball and I, you know, that was my deal. And when that, you know, when that got taken away from me and I, I tried to come back, I mean, it didn't work out. I was kind of lost for a while. So I, I think I went to university. I don't think I did. I went to university of Florida um, because my girlfriend was there. Who's now my wife. And I was just, like I said, I was overwhelmed by that whole deal. I wasn't really a student. Um, the, the size of it, uh, I wasn't playing basketball. I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I had some money from my uh, from the accident because um, it wasn't my fault. Um, and I decided that I was going to jump in my car and, and go to Alaska. So I jumped in a car and spent two years in Alaska in Fairbanks and drove there. And And I was just – basketball is huge in Alaska. And I was just playing in a gym one day. As you can imagine, it's probably hard to recruit in Alaska as I think about it now. Right. Uh, and they offered me a, a basketball scholarship to play for the University of Alaska. And I played for the University of Alaska for, for a year. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. You never know what uh, how life's going to work. Who would right. try to figure that one out? Right. right. In Alaska, of all places. Pretty upset with myself, though, as I look back in terms of just like, I think I was going to Alaska to get as far away as I could from Florida, but still, you know, be in the U.S. And then when I, I was telling Stephen this, when I, when I think about it, as much as I've traveled in my 40s and 50s, I didn't take advantage of going to Alaska. I kind of like went to Alaska and, and just, you know, I did a little bit of exploring, but I never went to Denali National Park. I never really went to Anchorage. I mean, I drove there, but it's kind of like living in Florida and not going to the beach. I just lived there and went to school, played basketball. And as I look back on it, I kind of, I probably have to go back to, to really, you know, take advantage of all that Alaska has to offer. You got to, you know, Mr. B, I'm trying to remember, because we're going back quite a few years now. Uh, is that where the moose story happened? Was that when you were living in Alaska? Yeah. So one of the things... My, you know, and I, I really enjoyed teaching at St. Thomas. Like St. Thomas was like, especially in, you know, I don't know if it was the timing. I got there in 1999. I was, you know, in my early thirties. And, um, once you proved yourself at St. Thomas and I was around a bunch of legendary teachers too, like they were all, they weren't necessarily my teachers because I wasn't probably a good enough student to be in their classes, but they're all the legends of St. Thomas there. Coach Smith was there. You know, guys like Shep were there and Conley and all, and all these legends um, that I've been around as a kid and Steve Strand. And once you were able to prove yourself after a year, they basically left you alone. So one of, one of the ways that I used to try to, like, entertain my class was to tell them stories about the story of the rat or the story of the moose. And I would tell these stories for, like, 
every every year I would tell this the same couple stories and and the, the, it be, it kind of became a thing, you know. So and it, it always worked because they were, you know the kids were in ninth grade, so you could tell these. And obviously, there were a little bit. There's a little bit of exaggeration there. There's always an element of truth, but but it was yeah. The move the move story did take place in Alaska. That's awesome. If you want the real story, I can give you the I can give you. You know the, the 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 ninth grade story is this moose with a huge rack that was less like this uber moose that that charged me. The the, the real story was probably was it was probably like a, a female moose that. <laughs> so that was probably a minor change in the story. So now I want to hear the story like you told it, like if I was sitting in your classroom, like a ninth grader. Here's what like I was, the whole thing, like exactly what the kids heard. Uh, yeah, this, this, is good. this is good. I've done this in ten years, but here's what it would be: it would be like so. I lived on top of this ridge in Fairbanks, and you have to understand it was like negative forty degrees below zero. And so me, me, and Berjol the dog. Now you have to understand this dog, Berjol the dog. It wasn't like it was a normal canine. It was like this dog was my was my was my child, and and we were like a close bond. I love that dog more than life. And me and Berjol the dog were driving. Up, you know, around the mountaintop and winding, 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 winding. And we, and we park, um, you know, right at, I used to live in this basement below this house and we park on the, on the driveway, but this driveway, when you get off the driveway, it descends. And it was just at the time of the, the winter breakup or the spring breakup. So there's, I don't know, there was, so moose were coming in from the bush looking for food and there was, the wind was howling in my face and the, and the snow was there and I was partially blinded on it. And when I opened the door, Brajol, the dog, has jumped out, jumped off the driveway, jumped into this down the ridge, into the snowbank, and all you see is like this orange fur. And I could barely see him. And I'm like, Brajol, where are you going? And all of a sudden, I look at this huge, like, moose. And Brajol, the dog, has gone right up to the moose and started sniffing the, mo- the moose's hooves or legs. And, and what freaked me out about that was that I was like, I know in the Alaskan wilderness that a, a lot of wolves get killed by, by moose. But I said, my, my dog is not going to be killed by no moose. So I jumped off the driveway into the snow, down the ridge, up to my waist. And as soon as I did it, the hair in the back of my head stood up. And I felt, <laughs> and I felt instantly like I was on, slipping on ice, but I wasn't. I was terrified because I knew that. I was gonna, I was gonna be in some serious jeopardy with this moose, and I was trying to get to the dog, and I'm screaming Berjol, and I, and all of a sudden I'm face to face with this moose, and I look over, and then Berjol, the dog's not even around; he's peeing somewhere like 20 yards on the side of a tree over here, and it's just me and this moose. So, so I wheel, and I can just, I can feel the moose's breath on the nape of my neck as I'm trying to work myself up this hill back on the driveway. I get up on the driveway. The moose gets up on the driveway with me. Now we're on like ice and I run over and I jump over the trunk of my car and the moose goes flying by. And all I remember is that my, my wife in the doorway of, of the basement where we lived, just laughing. It was, it's one of those laughs too, where it's more of a laugh of terror, but it was just funny. It was a funny movement. I was going to go inside and I was going to get my gun. And I was going to shoot this moose. And I realized that my gun was a 22 and it was probably like throwing darts at the moose. So I went in <laughs> I got, right off. I got, yeah, right. And I got a photo. I got my, my camera and I took a photo of the moose charging at me again. And when it charged me the second time, definitely got out of the way. This huge tongue was flailing in the wind. I thought it was kind of ironic or weird that this tongue was out. So that would be how I would tell it to a class. Now, I haven't told the story in a long time. So I still, I, 
I still remember it. Like I still remember that story. Like it was yesterday being in your class, dude. Yeah. The kids would go crazy and I would say crazy stuff. There, there'd be other exaggerated stories too. Like I, this came back to haunt me at report card night. So I had um, a PowerPoint of the pyramids at Giza and I told the kids that, um, you know, when I was in Egypt and it would be like right off the internet, but I told the kids when I was in Egypt that I was trying to climb the pyramids and I got arrested and I spent six <laughs> months in an Egyptian jail. Don't tell your parents, but yeah, that's what happened. And this is before cell phones really were like a big thing. This is like the early 2000s. So the kids would be like, oh yeah, man, Mr. B spent some time in an Egyptian jail and no <laughs> one said anything for years. They, everyone just assumed as they got into the next grade that I had spent time in the Middle East in a jail until one <laughs> One open house, a parent called me on. They're like, you know, I'm really concerned. My kid came home and said, you had spent some time in Egypt in jail, like six months. Can you explain that? And I just, <laughs> well, not really. I was just making a joke. But they took it seriously. So, yeah. <laughs> I almost forgot about that story, too. Yeah. Well, I want to I bring the audience up to date a little bit because um, Busaka was, you know, was telling me about you is one of his favorite teachers that he had at, at St. Thomas and the audience doesn't really get it, but Busaka and I, you know, we became friends through fishing and all that. And it's just pretty ironic that you guys had such a tight relationship. I had no clue that you guys even knew each other. And then we're doing these uh, interviews with different people. And Steven's just telling me, Oh, we should get Biasati on here. He'd be great. He loves to tell stories. He was one of my favorite teachers, so on and so forth. And then I open up my eyes to the whole situation and I figure out that we graduated together and didn't realize that we were in sports together at right. St. Thomas Aquinas. So it's just kind of kind of neat how all that how that worked out. Now you uh you're still at St. Thomas now as the dean, correct? Yeah. And I, I have a bunch of different roles now. I am the Dean of Students. Um, and when I became the Dean in 2007 or eight, I was the only, I was like Dean Harrington. There was one Dean and there was 2000 kids. Um, wow. Now because of the way things are and the shifts in society and technology and, and some good things and some not so good things, my office has completely expanded. So we have three deans now and a Dean's assistant and we handle things like, uh, you know, not only student discipline, but also security has become obviously huge after Stoneman Douglas. Right. And, and now with COVID, um, I'm in charge of all the kind of like the re-engineering of our building in terms of how we're going to deal with COVID when you come to student screening or temperature checks or redesigning our hallways or, or designing classrooms for social distancing and stuff like that. So. Right, right. That whole that whole office, like you wouldn't even, no one. I would. Okay, if you were in the eighties, you and I, Jeff. Uh, you, know, you know, I remember that I got in an altercation in class in theology class. I mean, we're talking like desks being moved around, and I got into this weird like, I got in this weird position in, 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 in a you know, for lack of a better word, I don't want to say this, but it was it was actually it was a, it was a fight. It wasn't a very good one because both of us got into this wrestling position where no one could move or do anything. We just sat there and held on to each other for like two minutes. Until the teacher was like, what the heck's going on here? And, the, and the, we got sent down to the dean's office. And the dean literally, Dean Harrington, literally looked at both of us and said, are you guys going to do this again? And we said, no. And he said, why don't you guys go into the bathroom and clean up and then shake hands and you're done. And that was literally it. Now, if that happened today, right? I mean, it would be like statements being filled out. There's a possibility that law enforcement could get involved. 
definitely if it, if it was premeditated, the kid would, you know, maybe one or both the students would be asked to leave. Um, it could, it could be, it could be assault, you know? Um, so there's, there's a lot more, there's a lot more things that go on today that happened when you and I were in school. And then when I first got to St. Thomas, um, you know, things are just, things are a lot different and they're, 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 they're different in, in, in good ways and they're different in bad ways. Cause definitely I can remember at St. Thomas and PE, um, literally with my back against the wall sliding in PE class, hoping that no one would notice me as a ninth grader while this other kid was being straight up put stuffed inside a locker room after get, getting out of one of those communal showers in PE and Shep's class and <laughs> throwing baby powder on him while like a rat or two co- or mouse would would, would, would would run by in that old dingy locker room that we were in. <laughs> so that was like that today, that would probably, someone would probably get arrested for that today. Yeah. Right. Right. Bring us through, bring us through the progression of how you got reacquainted, reunited with St. Thomas um, and talk about being the weight coach and then how your progression went from there to now. So I, I you know, I, when I graduated from University of Alaska, I, I, again, like I have seriously backed into my life. There's been, and there's, I don't know if there still is a plan. There has been no plan at all. Um, I went to Alaska on a whim. Uh, my best friend from Stetson University um, says, hey, I got a job for you selling stocks in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. So I, I go there, and it was essentially the, the Wolf of Wall Street like light. So it was like Wolf of Wall Street light. It was like the really poor man's Wolf of Wall Street. And I was like the worst stockbroker in the history of, of earth, the worst salesman. <laughs> that lasted for mere months. Um, <laughs> and then my wife got a job in Stanford, Connecticut, and I, and I followed her there. And I just started – well, actually, before that happened, I worked for Vanguard Mutual, uh, Mutual Fund Company. It's kind of like – just a guy on the phones fielding questions about IRA accounts and investments because I had my Series 7. And my wife got a job in Stanford, Connecticut. We went there. I started subbing. Um, I got my teaching certificate. Wound up in North Carolina. Tried, tried to work at a stock brokerage firm again, more of a legitimate firm that was tied to, you know, First Union, which is now Wells Fargo. I was pretty terrible at that too. I mean, I was terrible. Here's, here's how terrible I was. So, I hate to even admit this, but I, this is something I can tell you where I won't get in trouble on a podcast. So when you're, when you're a stockbroker, you can make calls anywhere in the world that you want to make calls to, right? So what I used to do, instead of like making cold calls or closing deals, I'd get on the phone in North Carolina and call my buddies in Alaska, right? And spend like hours doing that. And so we would have these, these meetings with, the, with the, the branch manager. He'd come in and he'd be like, you know what? I want to I want to find out who's making all these calls to Alaska. So our bills being run up. I can't believe this is going on. And everyone would look at me because who's from who's from Alaska? But me, you know what I mean? Like so, or we'd have these people come in. We'd have these people. I was so I was so bad. I was so untrained in like the real world that um, we'd have these mutual these municipal bond salesmen come in or whatever these mutual fund salesmen come in and they bring these like this huge spread like pizza and hamburgers and something to drink and they would lay it out because they want us to sell their product. So I would go in there first and I would destroy it. I would tear it down to the ground. <laughs> There'd be like pizzas on the wall and chicken wings over here. And then the other brokers would come in and I'd be stuffing my face. I'd be like, what? 
So <laughs> that obviously didn't work out. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I did that. So what happened was there was this job opening for a, um, a high school basketball coach at Ben L. Smith High School in Greensboro, North Carolina. So I just decided to go, you know, interview for that. And I got a job teaching English as a second language kids for three years. So what that, uh, let me explain what that means. So this is a time where it was just after the Iraq war. It was during the, uh, the, the situation in Bosnia, Kosovo. Um, and there was a situation in Somalia going on. And there was a lot of refugees that were pouring into this Baptist church in Greensboro, North Carolina. And they all went to Ben L. Smith High School. And my class, I would walk into my class. I was coaching basketball, JV basketball there. And I'd walk into my class. And literally out of a class of 30, you'd have half the class who spoke no English at all. You have a quarter of the class who spoke 25%. And then the last quarter who spoke 75%. And they just stuck me in there. With, I was certified for social studies. They stuck me in there with no training with ESL kids, nothing. So I was teaching Vietnamese kids, Iraqi kids, Somali kids, right? And I would just go in there and, and do my – I taught them just like I taught you, Stephen. I would just go in there and do my deal. And in those days too, I mean, I, I could have a lot of fun because no one even knew what I was saying. <laughs> you know, Mr. B, I'm, I'm happy that you're talking about, you know, the teaching thing and, you know, because one thing that I wanted, that I really wanted to be able to do on this podcast, um, and it, and it's a shout out to you too, that I don't really know if I've ever really told you this, but you know, when I graduated from St. Thomas, um, you know, I, I went to college and I, I knew right off the bat that I wanted to major in communications and that was something and actually in communications, you know, public speaking and whatnot, that was a passion that I had discovered that I had while we were at St. Thomas. And, you know, I don't know if I ever told you this, but Part of how I struck, I, I sort of developed my public speaking style was actually based on your style. You know, I don't know if I'd ever told you, but you were, you were a pretty big influence on me um, in terms of how I spoke. Well, I, really, and, I appreciate that. I want to tell you, so I have a little secret to tell you though. Oh, oh snap. Oh boy. So, so if you were influenced by my style as a public speaker in 2000 and whatever it was, five or six. six I want to tell you that literally when I became the dean, being a public speaker is a big part of the dean's job. Like you address the teachers, you know, often every faculty meeting, giving them updates. You address the freshmen when they come in the building for the first day. Then you address the whole student body and the faculty. Well, for the first couple of years, I had such a – this is why I probably failed as a, as, a, uh, as a stockbroker. I had this – I was deathly afraid of – public speaking, except if it was coaching or except in the classroom. So literally my right, my, my right glute, which I thought my right glute was going to shake off sometimes <laughs> so bad and I couldn't breathe. So every time they called me up to, to address the faculty, my first two years as the Dean, I, I ran away. I would, I would be lost. They'd be like, where's Rob at? And then I would go address them in their department meetings. And then it probably took me uh, when I say literally five or six hours in my house practicing my two-minute speech to the incoming freshmen, um, you know, the 500 kids that would be there on the, on the first day, and I'm talking about shaking. I'm talking about losing all the evaporation in your mouth. My, my, for some reason, all, all my stress goes to my glute. My glute would, like, vibrate. Um, and I was wondering, can anybody see that right glute in my pants, like, shaking? It's going to shake off. <laughs> and And then – and, and then I, when football started happening too, I started getting invited to these conferences uh, and, and actually getting paid to speak about what was happening at St. Thomas football. And the first couple ones, 
I would bring John and John would only, John would be like 13 or 14 and, and I would bring him and he'd be like, dad, why are you sweating so much? And, and, I'm, and I'm like, John, what do you think? He goes, man, I don't, are you going to, are you going to be all right? And so it took me a while. It probably took me five or six years to be able to now, now I, I said, I think I'm, I think I'm really, really comfortable and, and really, you know, I'll let, I'll let other people evaluate me. I'll let them evaluate me, but I'm, I'm pretty good now. As far as I'm concerned, I'm comfortable. I'll put it to you like that. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing that, the thing that I always really, that I was always very interested in your style of speaking is, you know, was your ability to really just command an audience, you know, and, you know, you did it through you, like you could be funny, you could be serious and you had this way about you. And, you know, being Italian, we talk with our hands. I remember you talk with your hands all the time because I did the same thing. And I really, oh, and, and you, and, you know, there were other teachers that I also had looked to for inspiration, Diarmis, uh, Mr. Seeger, Mr. Rodriguez. But I remember, you know, growing up and being in elementary school and middle school, you know, the teachers were very different. They, they, they were good teachers, but they weren't very charismatic. And when I saw your charisma, when you would get up and address us in class, or like you said, on the first day of school, I just remembered sitting there looking and going, Gosh, like, and it's funny how you were saying that you used to be afraid because I'll, all I used to think of was, man, he must be having such a good time while he's doing this. And I was like, you know what? I want to be able to do that. And yeah. so I actually want to say thank you, you know, because you really helped me develop my speaking skills, which I think it's kind of ironic that now here I am, you know, co-host of a podcast. No, I think that's great. And and listen, anything I can do to help anybody, I, I mean, especially you and one of my former students, I really, you know, I appreciate those kind of words. I was always very comfortable with in the classroom. I was always very comfortable in the locker room. I was very, very uncomfortable outside those two settings. Um, and then, and then, and then and a good life lesson for everybody. And I'm still learning this is that once you make yourself uncomfortable enough, and it might take a couple of years, then you're wondering why you were ever uncomfortable in the first place. You know, I mean, you should, you should have seen me when I, you should have seen me as a dean when I had to ask the first student to leave. It was like, I'm sorry, you have to, you can't, uh, yeah. You know, I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, they, they probably think I'm having some kind of seizure here. <laughs> and now I could probably juggle and, and I don't want to make light of asking anybody to leave a school, but if someone does something that warrants that, you know, sometimes places aren't a good fit for people. Now it's like, I could probably juggle eat a chocolate donut and, you know, you know, watch a YouTube video while I was having a conversation about, about disciplining somebody or having a difficult conversation that doesn't, that doesn't bother me. I'll tell you what does bother me now when I have a conversation about like when it's funny about getting in your zone or getting in your own world and being very, very comfortable. Um, if I have a COVID conversation, you know, cause I don't know, I'm kind of like new to all the rules, new to HIPAA and FERPA and trying to figure out, you know, I don't what an exposure is or what a positive is or what's the, what's the incubation period and who's allowed to come back on campus. So I have to constantly reread stuff and then have those difficult conversations with, with parents and kids right now that that's been a challenge, but I'm, I'm getting better at it. Well, you know, one thing I wanted to kind of talk about too, you know, going back to what you were saying about getting people out of their comfort zones and stuff like that, that was something that you did with Endgame adventures. Isn't that yeah, I think um, you know what happened was I had such a, I mean, and the, and the ship has sailed. It's funny because like a lot of things in my life, I don't I don't know if it's I'm sure it's not particular to me, but like I'm going to give you for instance, I 
for whatever reason, Johnny, I don't know when Johnny turned like 11 or 12, I bought him an Xbox for his birthday, but I really bought it for me. And I dragged it like an ethernet cable through my house and I had the headset and I'm playing like ghost recon or Madden football with anybody and everybody. I probably did that for like four years. Like every day I'd come home, put on the headset. I'm probably in my late thirties, whatever. And then one day I came home, I looked at it and I'm like, you know what? I don't have an interest anymore. I lost my passion for that. St. Thomas football. And I didn't play football at St. Thomas. That's another thing that people perceive. Like they'll see me now at, you know, six foot three, um, you know, 230 pounds. They don't realize that I was like six foot three, 175 in high school. I wasn't really <laughs> a football player. Um, but they look at me now and, and that, 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 that passion though, in the, in the weight room for six months at the height of what I consider um, high school football in the country, where we start playing games out of state, um, uh, the challenge of, you know, we got beat by Lakeland three years in a row and then being a part of that, being on the ground floor of that, and then being a part of winning four state championships and two national championships in five years. Um, what a, I mean, what just, I don't know. It's just like it's what people talk about a cause bigger than yourself and really doing it with people that are just extraordinary people, people that you love. And then, so the end game adventures, the reason why I went looking for something else is because after that first day championship that I was a part of, and, and just imagine you're, you're, you're grinding and building. I built that program myself from the ground floor up in terms of the six month deal. I went back and got a master's degree in exercise science and, um, I was actually looking for another, I don't know, for lack of a better word, passionate experience. And so I just decided I was going to go out to Arizona and I was actually looking at Men's Health Magazine. I had never hiked before, never, never camped. And um, I looked at, there's five of the best waterfalls in the world to hike and Havasu Falls was one of them. So I got my three top football players on that 2000 state, state championship team and they couldn't afford it or one of them or two of them couldn't afford it. And so we had a basketball camp where they were the camp counselors. I don't know. I raised like 10 grand. I should have just done that. And, and um, we flew out to Vegas and we hiked that, that, uh, that, that Havasu Supai Indian reservation hike. And I was hooked in terms of like hooked from the standpoint of complete barbaric pain of not knowing what you're doing and then trying to camp and in the middle of nowhere. And then you're with these like, three guys that one's going to be a, you know, a cadet in the, at, um, and one of the military academies, one's going to play football at FSU. Uh, and it was just an awesome, awesome experience, awesome bonding. And then that led to 29 other adventures where we're literally, again, I had no idea what, I had no idea what I was doing on the hike. I had no, I've never snowboarded before when I went to Canada when I went to Vietnam, I didn't know what I was doing. I would just go there and just met, when I went snowshoeing in New Hampshire, I would literally go there and just have this imposter syndrome, fake it till you make it, and just wind up somehow doing it and then feeling really good about it, even though I was in a lot of pain in a lot of those experiences. But it was great. Now, getting through it, the venture, the adventure, the whole thing, you know, absorbing it, getting through it, accomplishing it, and then going back and looking back at it. I mean, it's got to, it's got to feel good. And what you just wanted to, you wanted to spread that amongst as many people as you could. Yeah. You know, for me, you know, and we, we, my wife and I always talk about, well, Rob, cause it was a business, but it was, if it, what's a business and what's a hobby. 
right? And then if, when I had to make business versus hobby decisions, if you want to call it a hobby or a passion, right? I always, I always sided toward the passion hobby side of it because like I said, like um, I could have just ran a basketball camp and made decent side money that way. I was a personal trainer before I was uh, the strength and conditioning coach at St. Thomas. I probably should have kept on doing that considering what's happened to personal training and CrossFit and all this other stuff that wasn't, that didn't exist when I started doing personal training in 2000. But if I, if I, if I'm not interested in something, I will not do it. Um, so I've always sided with passion. I think the passion came from, um, especially on that Havasu trip, me and those guys were just coming off a state championship. We had spent six months together, finally crafting. Okay. So I came on board after our first, uh, Lakeland loss, and there had been no strength and conditioning, no formalized, mandatory uh, protocol, progressive strength and conditioning program. So it took me kind of two years to figure out my style. And that, that, that third year, everything came together with some, some individuals that were the leaders on that deal that had bought in. And we all had each other's back. And, and that flowed out to whatever it was, 80 to 100 guys. And so when I decided to go out to do this hike, I was like, you know, who wants to, I don't want to do anything like that alone. Um, and so I think when I get back to hobby versus a hobby, passion versus business, I wanted, I wanted to kind of expose other people to that kind you know, those moments, but, but a shared moment, because it's the shared moment when you're, when you're suffering in a hike, it's that shared moment where, when you're on a surfboard and you haven't caught a wave all day and someone else catches the, catches the wave and you see them run down the, or charge down the face of the wave. And you're like, wow, man, that's really, really, it's cool. You know what I mean? Those, and those are like lifetime memories where like no one's going to forget those things. Or when someone falls off a, a ski chair and breaks their, you know, breaks their wrist, you know, and you got to take them to the hospital. Like as bad as that sounds, I mean, those are like memories that, that, that stay with you and, the, and, the, and the, the, you're, you're connected with other people, just like on a football team because you're right. putting you're putting yourself outside your comfort zone. So I was always looking to do that. Um, football has come to an end for me because I, you know, I, I, I just said I did my part with St. Thomas football and they're still having great success. And that's one of those things where everybody is, I've always said this, that everyone can be replaced. I don't, I'm not saying you can duplicate people. Like you'll never, ever, ever, ever duplicate a Shep. You can replace a Shep. Right. But You'll never duplicate him. You'll never duplicate Coach Smith. Um, but yeah, that's. I, I took a long way to answer probably a simple question. Sorry. No, no it's, it's good. No, that's what you're, I mean. We do. We're doing podcasts. We can. <laughs> right, 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 right. That's the time to do it. You don't get too many. You don't get too many opportunities just to just to go. And that's one of the things that we've you know we like so much about the podcast because people get on here, and they just go. You know, time goes by and everybody kind of gets something out of it. So, no, you're doing great, Rob. The um, right. One of the things that uh, Steve and I are real active in right now is this thing called the Coastal Community Network. And what we're doing is we're trying to unite a whole bunch of people to be on the same team to accomplish the, the goal of clean water and um, restoration of marine life. Right. And I... I, I I wanted to kind of get your input on what you think, what you think probably the best way to unite a large amount of people um, and maybe a tool or a trick to do that. It, that'd be pretty tough to say, 
but I would say that they have to be exposed to, and it's, I think nature and what you guys are, first of all, what I think you're doing is like, I mean, we are, we evolved to live in, in this natural world that is, is just, you know, God's creation or, or whatever you want to call it. And it's just something that we're tied to because we're part of nature and we live in nature and we just, we're just being, and you know, if it's, if people are exposed to, to the, to what the natural beauty is and clean water and, and animals and stuff like that, man, it's just, it does something to your soul. It does something to like, I don't know. It, it does something to your default mode. It wipes your, it wipes your, your brain clear. I just think it's, it's getting people out in those environments and, you know, outdoors so they can really feel what it's like to be integrated with nature because I don't think there's anything like it. There's nothing like it for me. Like if I'm sitting on a surfboard in Costa Rica and, and, and I want to make this clear, like everything that I've done in nature, I'm, I'm not very good at it. Like I'm not a very good surfer. I'm not a very good snowboarder, but you know what? I love being on that mountain and I love being in, you know, whatever waist high waves in Haco, Costa Rica. Just, and if I, if I catch two waves that day, that's fine. But I'm on my board. I'm in the water, the mountains and jungles. I'm surrounded by that, man. And I feel like I feel almost I'm in a a trance in a really, really cool, almost meditative state. And I'm I'm healed by it. And I think if I was going to try to convince somebody to to help the environment and do what you guys are doing, I think you have to get them out there. You have to get them on the water. You have to expose them to every the the beauty of it because it's it's just beautiful. It really is. And it's hard to describe that to people that have a reluctance to do that. I don't, I don't know. Right. Right. One of the, uh, one of the things that happens to me often and you dealing with students every single day, I'd love to get your take on it and how you feel about it. And let me know if you have come up with a solution because so far I, I haven't. So I go and I take people fishing on a daily basis. A lot of teenagers get on the boats with their dads or dads are paying big money to go out there and, you know, basically catch some of the better fish in the ocean. And I'll go out there and there'll be three boys on the boat, say a 12-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a 16-year-old. And they've never seen the giant tugboats before, the cruise ships or the freighters or a jetty or even the ocean for that matter. And I have a hard time watching them watch their phone while they're out there. And I just like wonder, is this whole generation missing it because they got face in the phone? It's difficult, man. Like we were in, and, and these are people like, so I've taken 300 people, mostly 23 adventures down to Costa Rica and then British Columbia, New Hampshire, Death Valley on a bike ride. And what you're describing, I've been through. I've been, I've been um, doing this incredible hike in the volcano area, volcano area of Costa Rica, Bajas del Toro. And I'm talking about, I'm talking about, you'll be, you'll be blown away by the water, by just the, the fauna, just by everything completely, completely blown away. And some kid has like, I don't know. And I, and listen, rap music was coming along when was just coming out when we were in high school, but full on rap music coming from the iPhone while we're, while you, if you just turn your phone off and listen to the sounds of, of nature, the howler monkeys or whatever it is, it's just a, again, I'll get back to the healing aspect of it. 
Um, I've tried to, you know, you don't want to overreact. I don't want to snap on somebody and be like, you know, what the heck are you doing or whatever. You just kind of like, what I did in that situation is I separated the group. I said, well, you know, if you want to listen to, to, to music during this, that's okay, but you'll have to go ahead or you have to stay behind and the people that want to kind of experience this. So I don't know. I've kind of let them kind of make the decisions and hopefully they'll one day get it or reflect on it. Um, I'm not a big believer in, I think whenever you force anybody to do anything, you're going to have the immediate opposite reaction. So as long as it's not a life or death situation, I'm not going to probably be forcing anybody on an adventure. I mean, the, the, the bottom line is, and that's the problem too. And that's why, honestly, Jeff, that's probably why I stopped slowly stopped doing my adventures because and, and listen, too, it's not just the kids. I mean, I think I'm getting older, too. So my my outlook and perspective on the world is changing. So over that course of from 2008 to 2020 or 2018, which is my last adventure, um, I noticed that the kids weren't willing to grind it out and do these epic rainforest hikes. So they weren't willing. Uh, that second, That third day of surfing when it's pretty tough and you've never surfed before and you've never paddled out, they just weren't into it. They'd rather hang out, you know, at the, at the, you know, and get hot chocolate or whatever. And so I noticed that too. And I think that's what kind of, that's what kind of made me reassess, you know, end game adventures. The football. Really? Well, yeah, I mean, I haven't been on an adventure in two years. Um, I did have a, I did have an epic, epic adventure plan with one of my very close friends. Uh, we were going to do a 60 day, three continent, drive of Europe, head over into Istanbul for a couple of days, do 10 days in Israel, spend three days in Cairo, and then two two days driving the wild coast of South Africa, and then COVID hit. So I've been without, I've been without an adventure uh, you know, for, for two years now. But I did notice that trend. And from my standpoint with the kids, and this is, you asked me that question, how do you get people bought in on what you're trying to do? Um, I noticed when I first started this that that my liability, my perceived liability, my perceived liability and my real liability was probably always the same. But my perceived liability in 2008 to 2016 or 17 stayed the same. And we always had these accidents. We had a kid who had a heat stroke in the desert and had to be helicoptered out. We had a kid get uh, hit in the head with a surfboard and his head got split open and we had to get stitches in nowhere, Costa Rica. I mean, we've had Montezuma's revenge and we've had tetanus shots. We've had all sorts of things. Every adventure we, I had to hit, I had to hit a kid with an EpiPen because he, you know, ate uh, the wrong walnuts or whatever in a salad and he had some kind of weird reaction. But as time goes on, um, I always felt like, well, in the beginning I felt like I'm good. I'm coach B. Um, I have a relationship with the kids and the parents but as time went on, I'm not saying that I didn't have those relationships. I just felt like, wow, you know, if something did happen that was an act of God that wasn't my fault, um, I didn't feel the same level of comfort. You felt that liability creeping in. I felt the li- I felt the liability creeping in. I felt, and I felt that I felt the kids had changed. And, and you know, I would sell my adventures like, listen, like my last adventure, especially was was a 12 day, and I said, look, this is going to be Jurassic Park. This will be Jurassic Park, heavy, intense hiking, days of surfing. We went to this place called Cabo Montepalo near Panama, which has 2.5% of the world's biodiversity. 
And it, it was just epic surfing and epic hikes. And I'm not saying the, the 12 or 15 kids that went on that adventure um, weren't all in, but we stayed in like a bamboo hut at one point, or we stayed in a very, very clean, 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 but primitive hostel. And I'm not sure that they, in other words, their eyes were bigger than their stomach. They said they were down for it, but four or five of them probably weren't. They were probably they couldn't quite handle it. They couldn't quite handle it. But now when I talk to them now, and to go back to your point, Jeff, about how things change. Okay, so I'll talk to them now. And at the time, especially some of them were like, I didn't sign up for this. This sucks. And I'm thinking, <laughs> And I'm thinking to myself, you're crazy. This is like the best thing you'll ever experience in your life. And, and I want to go home and blah, blah, blah. And now when I circle back and talk to them now, a couple of years later as 20-year-olds, they're like, you know, Mr. B, man, that was like the best time I, I ever had in my life. And, I'm, and, and I, I grew a lot from that, that deal with you. I grew a lot. So that, that's, a, that's a big positive for me. It's a negative at the time that turned into a big positive. I didn't really have that many negatives. I'll give you, for instance, that girl, and I don't mind saying her name. Her name was uh, Liz Jenkins and it was my first Costa Rica trip. And I, I was meeting my, I was actually meeting my Costa Rican business partners face to face for the first time. And I thought this was going to be this epic business that I was going to start of adventure travel. And I was really super happy. It was like day four and I'm kind of like skipping down the beach. Cause I just cemented a deal with them. And I thought we we're going to have this whole camp and bring in hundreds of kids down there and summers and blah, 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 blah. And I look over and I'm like, wow, there's a lot of blood coming from that girl with the blonde hair. And I did a double take and I went, oh my God, that's Liz, that's Liz Jenkins. And I got her into the, I got her into the, uh, by the, by the pool area where we were surfing and there's so much blood coming off her head. It was unbelievable. And so we, we get her into a clinic in Hako and the power goes out in the whole city and I'm going through all my insurance forms. And I had everybody's travel insurance, but Liz. And I brought this other girl with me, Johanna Erickson. And the people in the clinic didn't speak English. They only spoke Spanish, but Johanna spoke English. So Johanna actually convinced the people in the clinic that, that the girl Liz was actually Johanna, that she had insurance. That's how we were going to pay. And then, then I, I went in the room while Liz got stitched up. And I'll never forget this. They put the Novocaine in her, in her skull and they are stitching her up and she's, she's gripping my hand and the sound comes on. It's the sound of them shaving her head, right? They don't, and she doesn't know her whole head's being shaved to get to this, whatever, two inch gash in her head. Okay. Oh, so I'm going to come to the end of the story. So she, she gets off the table. She's a little disoriented and I don't even think she was that bummed out that that she got stitches, but she went in the bathroom and all I heard was this gigantic scream because they chopped off half her head, off half her half the hair on her head. And so to make a long story short about how kids were different maybe in 2010 and maybe how I was different, I called her mom. Mom was cool. Hey, these things happen. No problem. This is not a big deal, right? But she's definitely not surfing tomorrow because she's got a gash in her head. So this girl, Liz Jenkins, puts... um. I forget what she puts on her head. It's some kind of like oil, like no Vaseline. She puts Vaseline on her own skull and she's surfing the next day against my wishes and against the wishes of her mom. And I just let it ride because we're surfing. You know what I mean? Right. And so I don't, I don't know if that happens today. First of all, that happens today. 
I'm, I'll be more panicked than anything, not only because I want to make sure the kid's healthy, but I'm like, oh man, I'm going to face some serious repercussions when I get home. This is going to be like plastic surgery and I'm going to get, I might get sued over this. Right. <laughs> you know, I never, I never felt that way. And Stephen and I were talking before the interview, like just things have changed in, in good and bad way, both in adventure travel, both in football, both in, uh, in the classroom, things have changed just like they change. You know, coach Shep actually hit me at St. Thomas. I wasn't wearing the right P uniform. So I got hit with the paddle. My basketball coach actually kicked me pretty hard in the backside for not being able to understand uh, the diamond press. And, you know, back then I never even thought about it. It never even crossed my mind. It wasn't like I was going to go home. My dad was going to be upset with me or the coach. It was just like the way things were. Right. right? And I'm not saying it was, it wasn't, and it wasn't a bad thing for the context of the time. It was just the way things were. Well, time, the times have changed. The difference between the times changing in the eighties to the nineties to the early 2000s, I think we're in in a period of tremendous change of every two or three years, probably because of communication and technology. And if you don't adapt to that change, then you're, then I think you're going to be in trouble because you, you're going to have to adapt. And and I, I certainly have adapted. Like, I don't think Steven would recognize me as the dean. I don't think he'd recognize me as a classroom teacher. So there's certain things like, I'll be honest with you. I mean, when I would, God, I don't want to, I mean, how do I say this? I had a lot of fun at Steven's, uh, you know, I had a lot of fun uh, with Steven, but it was at his expense at times. And I think that <laughs> I, I was cool with it though. <laughs> I, don't think he, I don't think he minded it. And I, I, and, I it, and it was a way to, to distract from the real work of education. But Stephen always used to come back for more. I used to say about Stephen, like when he used to come and ask me these questions as a 14 year old and I was whatever I was, 35 or 40 at the time, I would just like look at him. My other buddy would be here and the way Stephen would approach me, I actually thought we were like in a, like a, our own sitcom. I, th- I, I was looking for the cameras because it was like we would present this question and then I would fall into, I would fall into character too. I would be like, uh, you know, Full House, Mister B on some on some sitcom. Like I would, there were cameras around. There weren't any cameras around, and this would go on for years with Stephen. And it was just me being like, he would ask an annoying fourteen year old question, and I would give him like a condescending thirty five year old answer. <laughs> well, I could still remember Mister B, and that that even that that whole persona still kind of followed us even after I graduated too, because I remember I had come back to St. Thomas like a year later. And uh, and I went to see Diarmis, and I remember I said, "Where's Biasadi?" He goes, "I'll take you to him." And he and I walked in your office, and and all we said is that as soon as we walked in, it was like we were waiting for the director to yell, and <laughs> action, action. And this, this really weird thing would take over. We would fall into our roles of, you know, you being Stephen Buzaka, and then me being the condescending adult. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what it is. And then, you know, you just kept on coming back for more. And I, and I, I loved you, Stephen. It wasn't like I had anything. I, you know that. that was I know. A, that, was a, that was a relationship you guys built. That's awesome. I'll give you another example. There was this kid who had like a, man, I, I say I'm afraid to even say this, but there was this kid in one of my classes and he had a unibrow, right? And it was thick. It was like a shrub. And <laughs> I, I, I probably talked about his unibrow every day for his freshman year. Every day it was brought up like, like, like I'll just say his name, Joe, your unibrow is coming at me in 3D or Joe, calm down. I don't want your unibrow to attack me or whatever it was, right? Every day. And the kids would just like roar. And, um, and, and but he used to, he, he, he loved it. You know, we had a relationship I, and, and, we, and we continue to have a relationship to this day. You know what I mean? And then 
and a student knows this in my class um it was, it was like a rubber band of crossing the line of you know you first you'd have a, a, a the rubber band that was loose and then it would stretch and stretch and stretch and then either i would probably do something that would cross one of those making fun of lines or the kids would take things too far then i'd have to like get everybody under control and then we'd be under control for three or four days and then we'd just stretch 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 so it was kind of like that kind of deal where it was in and out in and out of like in control out of control and i really enjoyed that because i know i have my attention span is pretty bad and i think the kids actually enjoyed that too you know right right let me, let me all right let me tell you a reoccurring theme on the podcast okay now it's funny because you know steven's the age he is and i'm the age that i am we gave steven the nickname um the world's favorite millennial <laughs> Because old people, old people can have a good time with them, and they can go back and forth with stuff. But the, but the, the thing I wanted to bring up, and the common theme on the podcast, is that these millennials and these kids that are Stephen's age and younger, I keep referring to them as the softest generation that I've ever experienced in my life, or ever even thought of in my life. Am I being too hard on that age group, or are they as soft as I think they are? I, I just think if. Like I've really, I've really reflected on this too, a lot. And I just think that every generation, like, like I love history as much as I joke around about the way I taught or whatever. I was, I'm a history teacher because my grandfather, I, I spent some time with my grand, in my grandfather's house and he had the time life series on world war two and the old West and all these other different, different historical periods. And I just fell in love with history and, you know, one of the things I'll never forget about when you know the Japanese attacked us at Pearl Harbor, or when the or when the or the Nazis declared war on us, they really thought it was going to be a cakewalk because they thought we were so soft as Americans. They really thought we had an easy life, even even during the Great Depression. And I just think that um, I just think that when this generation is tested, and they will be tested, like we, we, we're all going to be tested, right? I, I do think they'll rise to the occasion. And I do think that. I do think that I'm anyway, I'm a victim of the whole idea that I did walk 10 miles in the snow barefoot to, to get to school. Um, I just think they face different challenges. I mean, can you and I, all right, can you imagine this? I mean, can you imagine the pressure that a teenager feels today where if you do one thing wrong, like if I did something wrong in 1982 or 83 or 84, or I got humiliated some way, man, that was over and done with that day. Or if I was being if I was being bullied, um, I could actually go home and that would be my refuge, right? No one was going to bother me at home. I can tell you today that if something goes sideways on a kid publicly, they, the whole community will rise up social media wise and launch on this kid, right? And, and that kind of social pressure we've never experienced. I can give you another example of the things that they experienced that I've never experienced. They create anonymous Instagram accounts or Twitter accounts. Well, well, they will just literally out everybody for the, for the biggest thing they've done in their lives up to 16, 17, 18 years old, who they, who their first date was, if they had this indiscretion, if they made this mistake, if they cheated on this test, or they lie about it, or they just make it up. They just make up, you know, John John did this at this party or whatever, or this girl is, is, is this. And I think to myself, like, man, that's pressure. You know, that's, that's, that's the kind of pressure I, I've never experienced. So I think, I think in certain aspects, they are 
you know, if you want to, if, if someone would categorize them as soft, I mean, certainly they, they probably wouldn't survive as well as we survived in the eighties, but I would like to see one of us from the eighties be transported to today and try to figure out their crazy world because their, their world is a lot, Jeff, their world is a lot more complicated. I mean, a lot more complicated than right. our world. Right. So I, now, I just think it's apples and oranges. Now that's a, that's a, that's a great answer. And, and immediately I'm looking at things just a little bit different since you said it. So that, uh, very good. Very well, good. Well, Mr. B, you know, it's funny. I, I think about how you were saying, you know, like with me, for example, you was just like, you know, I always kept coming back for more and everything. Cause I thought it was hilarious, but and I think a big part of that too is, you know, again, I really, I really was impressed with your style. You know, to me, that was original style, which is another recurring theme that we always talk about on our podcast is original style. Um, and, you know, I, I still remember the first day of your class, World History in 2006. I remember you said to us, you said, I'm going to tell you guys right now that after you leave this class, I'm not going to remember you. I'm probably not going to remember you. And after you said that, I remember I said to myself, I said, this guy's going to remember me. You, you know, you know I said all the time. And I think, I think, I think I, I said that a lot and I regret saying that. And you, you want, you want to know who I was saying that to? You want to know the truth? I was saying that to myself. Maybe I was being, maybe I was afraid of not being remembered. Right. As pathetic or whatever that is. Um, I think I was saying that to myself. Um, it's true, though. I mean, there's certain, obviously, I'll never forget you. And in talking about relationships, like the relationship that you and I developed. So if, if you're listening to this podcast, you might think, who's this guy that can make fun of people? No. Well, I was making fun of Stephen, and Stephen was probably taking it because Stephen was, I love Stephen as a student, and I, and he, I trusted him, and I knew he trusted me at the, at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, I had his back, and he had my back. And I'm sure that if, if he went home, and I, I know there was a couple times, Stephen, that, you know, I probably let things got, get out of hand a little bit and I had to correct you in a very harsh way and that you were receptive to because you knew it was coming from a good place. Um, you, you only, I remember, Mr. B, you did it. You had to correct me once. And I remember that I was actually, I was not mad or anything. I was actually thankful that you did that because that kind of helped because, you know, I mean, listen, I was a typical freshman, you know, I thought I was funny and, you know, I was obnoxious and everything. And when you corrected me that one time, it kind of opened my eyes a little bit. And I was like, you know what? I was acting like an ass. And I say, you know what? I said, I think he's got a point. I need to kind of tone it down a little bit. And I will tell you that after that, I noticed a change, a real positive change in sort of how I carried myself all the way through my remaining four years at St. Thomas. So I actually thank you for that. Well, yeah, but I felt comfortable doing that because you and I knew each other, you know, in a healthy student teacher way. I probably wouldn't make that same correction today, even with someone that I knew. Um, Cause I have to find a different way. And I, I have found different ways cause I've had to adapt. I guess that's my point too, is that we're all going to have to adapt in this new deal. I think to resist the adaptation and the adaptation can lead to like other things like the end. Listen, I miss St. Thomas. I don't miss St. Thomas football. I love St. Thomas football, St. Thomas football. I I mean, I will never have an athletic experience than coaching St. Thomas 
uh, football athletes for 10 years. That, I mean, it was just an amazing ride that we had. The memories are unbelievable, but there's, there's going to be something else that opens up because of that. There's going to be something else that opens up, um, you know, besides end game adventures that I'm still looking to do. And I'm going to have to adapt because the times are changing fast. So, uh, my plan is just to keep on adapting. I mean, I, and I make little adventures for myself. Like when I get depressed about, or I get frustrated with the whole COVID thing, I, I look back on, on some of my adventures, like being in the desert or snowshoeing in the mountains where I'm like, man, this kind of sucks, but I'm going to keep on marching. I'm going to march my way out. And that's how I feel with, with COVID right now. Like I'm going to, I can use that adventure experience and be like, you know what? I thought that this desert hike would never end and I had no water and I didn't plan for it and it sucked. And I'm going to make it out and I'm going to remember it. I've, I've done the same thing with COVID. I'm, I've done the same thing when I clean my office. I'm like, you know what? Let me make this and try to turn this into a, an adventure. But it's going to have to be a little different than it was before because I'm just not going to – I wouldn't necessarily talk to a, a teenager or an adult the way I would, you know, 10 years ago. And the same is true for adults. Like, you know, when I, when I have conversations with parents, it is a lot different now than it was 10 years ago. I don't know if it's better or worse. It's just, it's just different. It was probably easier for me 10 years ago, but that's all part of the, the, the learning. That's what I think anyway. Because right. there's, there's no going back. If you, think that, if you think the kid on one of your adventures isn't going to pull out a cell phone and listen to you know, whatever music he's listening to in the rainforest or, or sit on the beach and not grab a surfboard, and that, that's going to happen. You're going to have to walk that fine line of kind of negotiating and trying to kind of like slowly easing him in, you know, outside of his comfort zone. Whereas before it would be like, there'd be 10 kids and they, you couldn't pull them out of the water. Right. right. So let me ask you, let me ask you a question. Cause this, this happened to me and um, it continues to happen to me when people find out that I played football at St. Thomas Aquinas. Right. And we knew we had a good team and a good school back when we went to school, but you know, we didn't get crazy national recognition like we get now. Right. People act like it's such a big deal now. And one of the guys that always come up and I'm, I'm sure, you know, you live this every day. They say, Oh, you played football at uh, St. Thomas. And I'm like, yeah. The very next question is, was George Smith, your coach? <laughs> Yeah. And, and they just want a little piece. They just want a little something that a George Smith experience from me, you know what I mean? Or what did you think? Or how did it go? Or, you know, what was it like in 86 and that type of thing? Um, now you, I only spent two years with George, you know, I, I came in as a junior, I left as a senior and never really looked back. And I had my George Smith moments like I think so many of us had, but you actually worked ass to ass with him for a long time, making the football team better 20, and accomplish things. 20 years. 20, 20 years. Now, did you see a big change in Smith from the time 86 to now? Like you're seeing a change in yourself? Well, like you have to understand my perspective. Like, first of all, when I was with you guys, I always felt like, um, I always felt I was like um, the, 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 the orphan stepchild at St. Thomas for not playing football and playing basketball. So I had a lot of like, I actually resented you guys um, 
you know, as a teenager, looking back on you guys, on the teams in the 80s, you guys actually, because I can, I can see that period of time, and I have nothing really to do from football from 1999, or Coach Smith for that matter, from 1999 until 2005. And me getting hired as a strength coach is one of those kind of like weird right-hand turns of destiny. They wanted to hire somebody else. I was in the building. I was personal training. And it was the novelty of the Lakeland deal because the way Lakeland was was explained to me, it was the challenge of, I don't, I don't know, bringing these guys together. Um, and I had never played football. But getting back to getting back to what you talked about, I you know, as I reflect on going to the games in the '80s and watching you guys play, you guys are the ones who and and George would say this. George would you know would say that about about how you guys built the foundation for what came next. And people don't realize. I think it took between thirteen or eighteen years for for Coach Smith to win his first state championship. Right. You know. So people don't realize that, but I think you guys in the eighties, I think you guys were undefeated. You guys were like 10 and 0. Yeah. Um, we, well, we lost a regular season game one time to Stranahan. Right. And that, and that was like, the, you know, that was like just horrible. Like, man, that was the, that was the, the, the agony of defeat in sports, you know, was to actually lose a regular season game. So we lost the game. I think one regular season game in my junior and senior year, but um, like I said, my, my, my relationship with George was brief but you're, you're I, not going to, yeah, you're not going to have, listen, you have a guy who literally is, and I, I don't use this, I don't use this term lightly. You're not going to have a guy who's a leader of a organization that has had as much attention, who's ranked and you know, whatever the, whatever you want to call a ranking, you know, one of the top 10 or 20 coaches in the history of high school football, you're not going to have a guy like that. That's not going to, that people aren't going to love. And then some people are, are going to not love, right? Of course, yeah. You never, you're never going to have that. What I will say about Coach Smith and my relationship with him is he's a father figure to me. Um, even in my 35s or my, my 30s and 40s, uh, I've never – I mean, Stephen mentioned my charisma uh, in terms of what I always appreciated about Coach Smith is that once he trusted me, I literally – literally had his team for six months and I could do whatever I wanted, whatever. And we did whatever, right? We, we did whatever, you know what I mean? I mean, we, when I say whatever, we did whatever. If I want to play dodgeball for an hour, we were playing dot. We weren't even going to lift weights. Right. Once you got in that intimate club, you were in. I was like, kind of, let me, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny little, I mean, it was quick, but, so I, I transfer from Fort Lauderdale High School to St. Thomas, and um, socially it was tough, you know. I, I, I get on this team. There's freaking 100 kids on the team. Guys have been playing there since they were freshmen. Right. I roll, roll in there as a junior and start getting playing time. And socially, it was tough because, you know, a lot of kids didn't like me. I was from uh, – you know, public school system. Most of my friends were from a public school system and it was bothering me. And George walked up to me one day and he knew it was bothering me. I was a junior at the time. And uh, he said, he asked me, he says, Jeff, he goes, he says, can I help you with anything? And I said, no, I says, just, you know, sometimes I just don't feel like I fit in here. Right. And he looked at me and he said, you know, he says, that's okay, Jeff. 
He says, you're what, I, you're what we call a renegade. He says, you played at a lot of different schools. He says, you played at different little leagues. He says, and you're not the first one to come to St. Thomas. It's a renegade. And then he mentioned Keith Evans and Mike Irvin and a couple of guys that I just thought were, you know, idols as a. Right. Legends. Right. And he says, these kids were all renegades. He says, and Jeff, just remember at St. Thomas, there's a home for renegades. And then he walked away. And from that point on, I just felt like I belonged at St. Thomas. Jeff, when you say that, when you say that with the kind of genuineness and authenticism, like I know exactly, I can relate to what you're saying so much because as an adult, Coach Smith has made those moves. I wouldn't call them moves. I would call them just being him. He's done that to me. Listen, we, we, we were in a, I don't know, like I said, I have, I go through these episodes of my life. I mean, there's a reason why I drove to Alaska probably. There's a reason why with no football experience, I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I actually, you know, I dedicated my life to that team, probably at the expense of, I mean, I'm not divorced or anything. I have my wife's situation is great. My kids are, uh, I'm, I'm blessed, but I, I do have some kind of like, um, I don't know. I, I think harshly about myself back in that 2005 to 2000, whatever period. Cause I was never home. I was always with St. Thomas football. I lived it. I ate it. I, bre- I, I breathed it. Um, but there was a moment, what you just said about coach Smith, because there was a moment, there's a th- three or four moments just like that. I'll never forget where, you know, as an adult, you go through tough times in your life and you think that like, you just can't find your way out. You know, I'm in a locker room with coach Smith one time in the coach's locker room. And, and he, coach Smith just knows things about people just like he knew about you and what you needed to hear at the time. And he looked at me after a period of like, I don't know, two or three minutes of silence, which is a long time for people to be looking at each other in the coach's locker room. And he said, all he said was two words, you matter. And he got up and he walked out. And you know what? That's all I needed to hear. And I, I was fine. And then when I had appendicitis in 2009, and I was feeling sorry for myself. He called me again. And he says, why aren't you at practice? And I said, coach, I'm lying on the couch here. I have stitches in me. I, I just, he goes, you know, Biasati, I don't care what you think you've done. They're going to forget who you are if you don't get here. And he wouldn't stop calling. He must have called me seven times that day. I got up just out of surgery and I, and I went to practice. And then, then he always knew when to put my name in the paper. He always knew, like he knew that I liked attention. He always knew when to do that. And he knew when, he knew when to, he knew when to, to um, insult me. I mean, we're coming off the greatest football team ever assembled in 2009 that did not win a state championship with 10 pros on it. Guys you'll, you'll see on TV on Sundays today, LaMarcus Joyner, Brandon Linder, Giovanni Bernard, uh, James White, Phil Dorsett. I mean, this team is loaded. 10 pros. Right. We lose, we lose to Manatee. He walks off. The, I'll never forget it. He walks off the field and he starts screaming at me. Pointed in my face, hundred people around, right? And he said, "This is you. This is on you. You screwed this up. Look how soft we are. Look how much better shape Manatee was in." And I think that, like, he knew which buttons to push. He always knew the buttons that would work for me, but he knew the buttons that would work for you, and he knew the buttons that would work for other people. And a lot of people are resentful of that, Jeff, because a lot of people feel like he was just pressing a button. Cause he knew how to do it. Right. So I, 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 I've heard some of the people that are resentful of that for me, I don't feel that way at all. 
I feel like, I feel like, yes, there was at times that Coach Smith <laughs> manipulated me, but I always felt like he was doing it for the greater good. And, and I'll tell you what, I got a lot more than I gave uh, to that program, a lot more. Right, right. You know? And I, that's consistent all the way through probably 99.9% .9 of the people, whether you played or just were dedicated to the program like you were for so many years. Right. You leave, and I had no clue after two years what I had. And I, when I finished University of Connecticut and then I played semi-pro and then I watched football like a fucking fiend for 20 years. Right. I figured it out, but I had had no clue when I was there. Exactly. And he still knows. Like to this day, even though I'm out of it, and I think most people that leave when they, when they leave St. Thomas football, I don't think that he's very like, listen, he is a – you're either in the wolf pack or you're not. You know what I mean? So I, I've gotten a pass on that too because I think that he, he knows that I was totally dedicated in those years. And in those years too, we had great, great years. And, and a lot of that was because we were who we were. But come on, Jeff. A lot of it was like, you know, we were – we were, it was destiny. It was, it was good fortune. We had great, great players. You know what right. I mean? Right. And, everything, and everything just happened to come together. And I'm – I always say this like – there was a time when I, there was a time when my ego was so big that I really thought it was me. And, and you know, what, you know what's great about Coach Smith? Coach Smith, he let me think it was me. You know what I mean? Is one you ride the wave. Yeah, he let me ride the wave, man. You know, and it was a great, great wave. And he still knows things about me. Like he just knows about people. Like in this whole situation we're in now, even though I'm and not part of the football program. And I want to give a shout out to, to coach Harriet too. Who's like one of the, one of the greatest coaches I've ever been around. And I was on his staff for a couple of years during that transition. Um, you know, uh, he still knows things about, he knows things about human nature that you can't teach. Right. You know, and, and I don't, I think I know things about human nature, but he's operating, he's moving across the board a lot faster than, than, than I ever will. And that's why he's coach Smith. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well put. I mean, do you ever see like, I mean, I was there in the eighties, which I didn't have any interaction with him because I played basketball, but I was there when he was working out of this, this office that was just like disgusting, you know? And, 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 and when we took off now, you should see his office. Now you should, you should see the athletic complex. You should see our locker rooms. And like you get, getting back to you, you were you were the type of guy that built that foundation when you were there. You and your teammates for where for how far we've come, but you weren't living in the age of like going to Ohio to play or going out to Vegas to play. You weren't playing in the age of social media. You you didn't have max preps. You didn't have huddle. You know what I mean? So I mean, we're getting a lot lot more attention now than than we ever got. Right. You know? Right. No. it's totally different animal crazy hard to harness it but i think st thomas is doing for being so successful for so long and having so much attention i mean it's it's pretty nuts how they've been able to stay con consistent and with the same message and perform at the high levels and doing whatever it takes in order to get that accomplished it's just you know phenomenal and i just feel so fortunate to be a part of it yeah, it's bizarre. It's bizarre the length. It's bizarre, and, and and the common denominator 
and all that has been has been Coach Smith. Right. You know? Right. Right. Hey, thanks. Thanks a lot for being on the podcast. I think I think Steve's got a ending question for you. And um, man, what just great, great to have you on here. We really appreciate your time. And I think our audience is going to be able to learn something at the end of this. But um, really appreciate you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jeff, it was great to, to reconnect with you. I always like I'll be honest with you. When he said your name, I was like, oh, that was because you were like in my eyes as a, as a as a St. Thomas person in those years, like um, that you were that you, you were that in, in a cool way. I don't think that you were ever, I always viewed you as a, as a nice person, but I did view you as a, as a, as that renegade, but you know what I mean? No, still you know, is. Yeah, I'm sure you still are, but it's funny. It's funny how that, how that, like, I think I have a good perception of, you know, of that era. And you're right. There's some kids that, that weren't able to, there's some kids that are doing phenomenal things. And there are some kids that kind of maybe fell off in the, in the eighties and maybe got into some stuff that they shouldn't have got into or whatever, whatever it was. But you were, when, when Steven said your name, I was like, Oh man, that, that was that kid. You, you, you had that it factor too in high school and I'm sure you still do. (laughs) Well, we try. It's a 15 year old fisherman kids nowadays, but Hey, I'll take it where I can get it. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Mr. B, you know, yeah. just it's kind of, I don't know if it's, it's actually not even questions. It's kind of just some closing statements. Um, you know, I was, I was always bummed um, that I never got a chance to go on Endgame adventures with you. You know, that was something that I think I really would have enjoyed, especially, you know, talking about getting people out of their comfort zones and doing all kinds of things. You know, Jeff has surfed in Costa Rica and he's talked about how difficult it is. Um, but it's such a cool experience. I want you to look into something when you get a chance. Um, you know, speaking of you know doing things that frustrate people and get them out of their comfort zones, I want you to look up bone fishing in Biscayne Bay. Oh, you okay. should take. You should take. I should Rob. take him. You should take Rob. He'd enjoy it. That's- I think. I think you would. I want you to look that up, Mister B. Bone fishing in Biscayne Bay. I will do that. I will do uh, that, and I'll give you a call. And we'll we'll talk about it. Yeah, man. The last thing that I just kind of want to leave off uh, is. Um, yeah, and this was something that I've never told you, and I knew we were going to get you on here at some point. So I kind of wanted to save it for this. But you know, when I before I went to St. Thomas, I spent my entire elementary and middle school at an extremely small uh, school where I basically saw the same twenty-seven people every day for like almost ten years. Okay, so me going to St. Thomas and being in a school of, you know, a class of almost 500 kids to me was extremely daunting. And even throughout my entire freshman year, I always felt kind of intimidated. And I'd like to think that that intimidation is also what kind of caused me, you know, to act a fool at times and act all silly and goofy because I think that was just my body's natural response to it. And I got to tell you that the day... That, that finally, I still remember when it finally went away and I actually felt 100% comfortable in my skin at St. Thomas was the last week of my freshman year. I remember I bumped into you and Diarmis in the hallway and, you know, I was, it was the last day, actually. It was the last day. And I was kind of saying, hey, you know, you know, guys have a great summer. Thanks for everything. You know, and I said to you, you know, how, how much fun I had in your class. And I remember you and Diarmis looked at me and said, and just remember, I, I said to you, I said, thank you for having my back. And you said, and you guys said to me, you said, and just remember this, 
We're going to have your back for the next three years too. And that was the moment when I actually felt the whole intimidation of, you know, me being there in this giant school with all these people just went away at that point. And I just want to say thank you for that and how much, you know, I appreciate you and our friendship that we've kept up, you know, after all these years. Like I said, you saying that to me now, and I I told Jeff this about St. Thomas football, that, that means more to me than, you know, I got, in other words, I got way more than I gave, um, and I, you, you never, that's the thing too. You never know. And it's happened in my life, like with a coach Smith or whoever, you never know that one person is going to say that the right thing at the right time. Obviously I don't remember that, Steven, I know. Um, <laughs> you know, but, but I mean, I and actually, I was, I was actually afraid of what you were going to say, because there could have been a lot of things I would have said. <laughs> no, I know we, 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 we'll go into, we'll go more detail when you, when you retire, we'll go buck wild with that stuff. <laughs> wow. That's going to be quite, that's going to be quite the story because, because, because then I'm sure with Jeff, if you went back to the eighties, it would even be amplified more. Like, I mean, there's stuff that went on, I mean, in every place that is just like in the, in the, you know, during the different eras that would not be, you know, whatever today, but yeah, I appreciate that, man. Thank you so much. That, that means a lot to me. Nice. Rob Biasati on the real guy podcast. Really appreciate you. Great time to have you. And I hope you'll come back. Yeah, man. Thanks. Thanks, you guys. You guys, you guys be well. All right, pal. Run Thanks, that dog. Man. Run that dog. Yep. See you.